Welcome again, Church of the Beloved. We're so excited you're here again with us. Uh, I'm back again to finish off our final week of the Justice series. But I want to say uh, do not worry because next week we're starting an exciting series on the book of Exodus. Just a journey through Exodus. It's called uh, The Gospel According to uh, Exodus. And so if you know anything about Exodus, there's a lot of uh, stories about, you know, liberating the oppressed and the enslaved. And so we hope to continue this conversation of justice as we go through this sermon series to come. Uh, and so I want to begin with, with a story today as we come to an end of our series. And I have to admit, it's kind of a controversial story, maybe. I feel like I've been saying potentially controversial things the last four weeks. And so I wanted to say, you know, if you have genuine feedback or questions or, or concerns that you want to talk to me about, you can actually email me. Uh, my email is alex.spears at thebelovedchurch.org. Any complaints, any com feedback, just send it right there. I would love to dialogue with you. That was Spears, S-P-I-E-R-S, -E I think. And so I want to start with a story that I remember from uh, college. And um, what had happened was that there was a member of our student body who was in one of our rec centers. And as they were there, they actually had noticed uh, certain people dressed up in KKK outfits. So as you can imagine, they were really concerned. And so they reached out to the, you know, respective authorities, school authorities. And when the school did an investigation, what they realized was that it was a football team. And that not only had there been some white people who had been dressed up in these outfits, but there actually were some black people too. And so they were a little confused until they realized that what had happened was that they were reenacting a famous skit by Dave Chappelle, where this black guy joins the KKK. All right, some of you are laughing because you're heathens. You know about the skit, right? And I remember that there was this tremendous outrage, right, an outpouring of, of anger, and people were calling out the team and talking about how, uh, how racially insensitive it was, right, how offensive it was, how, how unjust it was. And kind of like now, there was this almost a heightened awareness of this topic of race and the conversation which is happening throughout the campus. And so I kind of, you know, I, I stayed alone. I was just kind of processing for a while. But remember about a week or two into it, someone came up to me and they were curious what I thought about what the football team had done. And I remember telling them, I was like, you know what? I'm torn. And they were surprised. And, and they were like, you know, wh why are you torn about this? It's clearly a dumb, racially unjust thing that they have done very offensive. And I said, you know, I'm torn because since coming to this mostly white campus, the people that have actually embraced me the most in the totality of who I am have actually been football players. I remember a story, I was freshman year in my dorm blasting uh, T-Pain and rap, and two football players came in my room and were like, we love this music, we love this song, nice song. And for being in a place where I was mostly hearing Bone Iver and some other country thing, I, it made me actually feel welcome for one of the first times. And I remember saying, you know, on one hand, what they did was clearly dumb, clearly not wise. But on the other hand, you know, all the people now who are coming to me and they're saying stuff like, you know, we're praying for you during this time of this racial conversation. You know, we're so mindful of what's happening. If you need to talk, let us know. Are the same people who had never talked to me before. 
they had never invited me to eat with them. They had never accepted, you know, the music I listened to, made me feel comfortable with the way I dressed. And so suddenly there was like almost this weird disconnect where I'm like, it's true the football team may have offended, you know, their black friends, but at least they have black friends. You know what I'm saying? Like at least they have those relationships. And I was wondering today, if I could be honest and speak from the heart, you know, it's the last week. Why do we pursue justice? Why do we care about justice? Why are we reading the articles we're reading? Why are we going on the marches or going on? I'm getting sent all these podcasts people are listening to. Why are we doing this? Is there a divorce between our desire to pursue justice for a certain category of people and our actions of actually befriending and loving that same category. I talked to one of my friends. I said, you know, the same thing's kind of happening now. I'm getting all these texts and a lot of messages from people. And I kind of joked. I said, I think sometimes people like uh, the idea of black people more than actually black people. And what I was saying is that almost this like second dehumanization happens with a pursuit of justice for, and, and, and Black Lives Matter, it's about like a category or a group of people, but there are no names or personal faces you know in that group. And I'm like, what we might not realize is that that's actually perpetuating an injustice because you are still dehumanizing those people. Am I going too hard today? It's the last week, I figured. Pull out all the shots. And so what I think the truth is is that it's so easy for us to uh, fight and clamor for justice from our living room and we never actually invite those people into that same living room. And so our pursuit of justice is shallow and injustice is perpetuated when we fail to actually build relationships with those who are marginalized. I said this week one, you know, about shalom, about peace. God is so different than we are. His pursuit of justice is different. He doesn't care about how it makes him look. He doesn't care if it gets him clout or more points with his friends. God, when he talks about shalom and peace, he's not talking simply about right systems. He talks about right relationships. Because he knows one fuels more than the other. I'm telling you, it's different when you have a friend. And that friend is the one that's oppressed. And that friend is the one you're marching for. And that friend is the one you're protesting. It's, it's different when you have a name. It adds humanity to the pursuit of justice. And so I don't, you know, people might be wondering, well, are you saying I can't really support, you know, Black Lives Matter without having or pursuing black friends? I mean, kind of. Or at the very least, if you feel like God has given you a conviction about any injustice, about any group of people or category of people who are oppressed, maybe you should reconsider where you live. Maybe you should reconsider where you shop, where you go to the gym, 
where you volunteer, the people you hang out with on the weekend. Maybe you should reconsider what it looks like to put names and faces to that passion that God has given you from black lives mattering to people being trafficked right in the Philippines. I want to talk um, a lot about what happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan because I think in this we kind of see what it looks like to build actual real relationships and not just a false narrative of doing justice. And so what we see in the story of the Good Samaritan, it's a story of injustice. There, it's injustice that's done by a few, but it's then perpetuated by others who walk by after it's done. Christ talks about a man, and he's simply just a man. Did you notice that? It's just, it's just a man. And maybe I'm going too far with this, but I, but I wondered uh, if part of the reason Jesus did this is he didn't want to add any other designations about this person. Because he didn't want the people to think that there was something about this person that made him worthy or deserving of being jumped and beat up like he was. He was a man first. And like we said in week one, it means he was made in the image of God. So no matter what he did or what he was doing, no matter what other ways you could describe him, he was a person first. I actually remember I worked at a camp called uh, Camp Barnabas and it was a camp uh, where I was helping serve people who had special needs. And remember week one, that's actually the language they taught us to use. People with special needs. Or people with physical and mental challenges. But they're always people first. And it was such, it's such a reminder, easy reminder for me, even in the way I speak to remember that fact. I always try my best, even when I'm talking about other people. You know, I don't like using the phrase like homeless people. But people who happen to be homeless. Or a Christian one as popular as my un- or non-Christian friends. How about my friends? Or, or, or people who happen to not be Christian. And so I think almost in a similar way, Jesus is simply saying, this is a man. Don't worry if he was rich. Don't worry if he was poor. Don't worry if he was a Samaritan or if he was Jewish. It's simply a man made in my image who did not deserve to be treated the way he was. We love to make excuses for why oppression and and injustice happens. You could say, well, the road he walked down was notoriously dangerous. And it was. From Jerusalem to Jericho, it was dangerous. It was literally like like a den of thieves again. A hive for robbers, robbery. But Jesus doesn't say, therefore, he deserved the oppression he got. No, he was a man made in the image. And so injustice is always wrong, no matter what. And so I almost imagine this picture of him being beaten and he's half dead on the road. And I wonder if he had enough, you know, consciousness to almost be able to look up at the people who were walking towards him. And I literally wondered if as he was there, literally dying on the ground, if he saw the priest coming towards him. Maybe with a little energy that he had left, he conjured up some hope 
This is a godly man, right, who works in the temple, studies the law of God all day, preaches about how to love and take care of people. But then that hope dissipates as he slowly watches the priest walk by. But then maybe afterwards he sees a Levite. And he knows the Levite is basically like the assistant to the priest, like his right-hand man who did a lot of the maybe administrative type roles and duties for the priest in the temple. And so again, he has this hope with the little energy he has as he's dying on the ground. Maybe at least the Levite man will see me and help me in my injustice. But again, that hope dissipates as he watches the Levite walk by. And in the same way, we see two people who teach and preach and proclaim love and justice miss the clearest opportunity that God has given them to actually build a relationship with someone who's dying and to save them and act out what they preach. How can this happen to those who study the word of God? How can this happen with us? And I think it has something to do with an idea that Abe actually mentioned uh, last week. You know, we talked about how we, me and him had a conversation uh, about, you know, kind of the Asian American experience oftentimes when it comes to talking about race, right? And he joked how I was kind of, you know, giving him an explanation, even though he's like the Asian man, I'm, you know, I'm not. And, and what he didn't mention, though, was that, you know, partly I got it from other people, but also... Um, I'm African-American, like African-American, you know what I'm saying? Like African. My parents are from Nigeria. And so the same assimilation culture that I was referencing for Asian-Americans oftentimes in America is the same one I actually grew up with. You should look like everyone else. You should talk like everyone else. Therefore, you'll be accepted. And I adopted that into my heart. I remember one time I was coming home on a train from Chicago back to the suburbs, and I was texting my sister to come pick me up, but she wasn't responding. And I tried calling her, but she wasn't picking up. And those of you who are my friends, you know, you might not be surprised to hear this, uh, but my phone was almost dead at this point. It's at 1%. My phone's always at 1%. Even when I charge it, I wake up, it's 1%. I don't know why. It's just the way it is. It's so about the time I got to this train station, right, my phone was dead. And to make matters much better, it was downpouring. But fortunately, there was a little place you could kind of stand inside with a roof. So I kind of went under there, and I waited for her for five, you know, ten minutes. And as I waited, I realized, you know, she's not coming. And so I looked to my right, and I remember seeing an older uh, white gentleman with an umbrella outside also waiting on the platform. And I thought to myself, dang, I'm going to have to ask him to use his phone. And I thought, dang, because I did what many of you might um, often be, you know, catch yourself doing, which is a self-check. And I looked down and I realized I was wearing sweatpants and running shoes and a hoodie and my hood was up. And I said, this might not go well. And so I paused and I said, let me take my hood down. Even though it's raining, let me, let me put my hood down to kind of help out with this interaction that's about to happen. And I literally sat and thought, you know, what words should I say? What shouldn't I say? How should I walk up to him so that he would accept me 
and help me? How do I assimilate to what the most non-threatening, most accepting culture is right now in this space? And after about, like, I think five, ten minutes of just, like, analyzing and adjusting myself, I finally walked up to the man. And I think I said maybe three, four, five words, like, hey, you know, my phone's dead, my sister's not here. And literally, he cuts me off. He says, get away. Get, get, get away from me. And he runs around me back to inside. And it's fascinating because at that moment, I actually wasn't even angry. I wasn't even sad. I wasn't surprised for sure. What I actually was doing was I was thinking to myself, man, I wonder what I could have done differently to have been more accepting to him so he would have helped me. And that's the lie, literally demonic lie that our culture perpetuates and we uh, believe even in the church. We are all susceptible to believing in this assimilation culture that only those who are palatable to us, whose cultures are, are comfortable to us, are the ones we reach out and will help or accept or build friendships with. And so religious people are perpetuating this life literally from Satan, literally anti-gospel. That you could practice religion, you could preach love without actually building real relationships. I mean, it's interesting if you look at who they are, you know, the, the priest and, and the Levite, they're working a lot in the temple. And the temple has rules and ideologies. It's very clear. If something or someone is clean, let's chill. Let's kosher. But if something or someone is unclean, you must disassociate yourself with that thing. They literally had Jewish uh, 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 laws that said, do not help sinners. Like verbatim was what it said. Embedded in the society, again, that, that there are those who are acceptable and those who are not. And I was reflecting on this idea because, you know, one thing I love about our church, the beloved, is I think we're actually multi-ethnic. And I always loved that. I said, you know, we have a lot of ethnicities. But the thing I've realized, honestly, over the many years I've been here, is we might not be multicultural, or at least as multicultural as we want to be. We have a lot of races, a lot of, we have a lot of ethnicities, but I don't know if we have a lot of cultures. I don't know if we're actually welcoming to a lot of cultures. And that, that nuance there is what I'm talking about, that even when it looks like, Right? We're building bridges and relationships. In the end, we're actually only doing it as much as they assimilate to the dominant culture. And so again, we see this demonic lie of shallow justice, which is mostly in word and, and in preaching, but without the example of real relationship building. And so Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is, in, um, is uh, introduced in the story not as anybody special. He was just a traveler, right? But it says that when he sees the man, just like everyone else sees the man, he has a different reaction. He took pity on him. 
I like the ESV version, actually says that he had compassion on him. And I like that version because it parallels an earlier passage in the Bible. I think it's chapter 7, starting in verse 11, where Jesus is walking with a crowd of people and a crowd of his disciples, and he sees a widow who had just lost her younger son after losing her husband. And Jesus, Jesus is on a mission. Like, like he has things to do. He's busy. He's surrounded. But he sees this woman. And he's moved to compassion. He has compassion on her. And so he goes to this one woman. And he heals her son. And in the same way, it says that this Samaritan is a donkey. He's on this road for a reason. Samaritans don't just go from Jerusalem, especially to Jericho, for no reason. He was on a mission. He was doing something. But he sees this man who is hurt, who's had this injustice against him, and he has compassion on him. My first prayer for us is that our desire to build relationships will not be built on anything else than us having love and compassion and empathy to the people God has called us to. That we could see them and we can love them. Next thing he does is he spends time with this man, right? It says that he puts bandages on his wounds, which would have took some time. He pours oil and wine. And I want you to picture this for a second, right? I think one of the excuses I often use for not building more relationships with the people I feel like God has called me to is that a lot of them live in dangerous places, Right? So it's hard for me to go to their house. And even if I don't go to their house, a lot of them actually have adopted perhaps what I call like dangerous mentalities almost. And they kind of get in trouble a lot or they kind of bring violence with them sometimes, it feels like. And so I don't want to often invite them into my house. Right? Because so I won't go there, but I won't bring them here because of the danger of it. But this Samaritan man doesn't just spend time with this uh, dying man, even though he has things to do, he spends time with this man on the same road, in the same spot that he got jumped. You feel me? Talk about danger. But he does not use his physical well-being as an excuse for not loving someone that God in this moment has called him to love. And I wonder for us as we once again think about where we spend our time, where we live, if the question of um, who God has called me to love is above even our own well-being. Because I wonder if the hard truth is that it's better to be harmed loving people that God has called us to than to be safe because we do not love better to be harmed building relationships with the one that God has given us a conviction to build with than it is to be comfortable because we don't want to do that. And lastly, what we see is that Samaritan's love was very costly. I mean, literally, he takes him to an inn and he gives him, it says, uh, two denarii, which is two days' wages of work. He puts him on his own donkey, his personal donkey. 
he tells the innkeeper, yo, like, keep him here. I'll come back. I have a mission to do. I'll come back in two days. Whatever more it costs you, let me know. I'll pay you back. I'm not very um, wise in the ways of money, but I think it's not incredibly smart to tell an innkeeper you have an open check to do whatever you want to do for this gentleman, and I will pay you back. It seems ripe for exhortation or um, abuse. Yeah, this is what he does. Because there's nothing glamorous about loving the unloved. There's nothing glamorous about respecting the unrespectable, about inviting the uninvitable. It will cost you to build these relationships. It will cost you to build these friendships. It will not be fun It will not be easy, kind of like this sermon. It will be challenging, right? There will be times where you're like, I I get it. I've had enough, and yet still, God might be calling you to give up even more. There will be times where you don't have the social energy to adapt socially to what's happening or what they're saying, and still, God is calling you to love. There'll be times where they don't take their shoes off in your house. They don't speak in a way that makes you feel comfortable. They, don't, they, they might straight up take advantage of your kindness. And still, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you don't just love the people who love you. You love your enemies. You love those who are hard to love. And you keep loving. That's what I love about this thing is he says, I'm going to come back in two days to keep loving this man. It was long-term, despite how much it was costing him. I have a quote by Paul Farmer, one of my favorite um, physicians. You might know him. He's also an anthropologist. And he became well-known for his hands-on approach to providing care uh, for those who were oppressed, those who were poor, um, but um, directly in their countries. And so he'll travel and he'll go and he'll make relationships among those people and try to equip them in that way. And one of the quotes he has is that, you know, we always want to be on the winning team, but at the risk of turning our back on the losers. He says, no, it is not worth it. So we fight the long defeat. We fight the long defeat. This past week I was in my small group, and I was leading a discussion on Abe's sermon from last week about diversity the picture he painted that God gives us in Revelations of how every nation, tribe, and tongue one day will be together proclaiming worship to God. And I was talking about how how this unity is, is a beautiful thing that we should strive for as a church. The problem is I love my small group, but they're easily distracted. They don't have very long attention spans sometimes. Make matters worse, we meet because of COVID outside in the park, Wicker Park. And so people were walking by, and about halfway through, they started just like openly talking to the people who were walking by. They were even beckoning some people over and have like a mini quick conversation with them in the middle of the Bible study. And so I'm kind of used to it by now, but, you know, I was a little bit uh, annoyed by this. But what started happening is they weren't just talking to these people, but they actually started to, to invite these people into our small group randos that were walking by, they're like, hey, we're having a group. Like, you you want to come join us, you know? So I wasn't just annoyed. I was a little bit embarrassed, too, at what was happening. 
But as I was sitting and I was feeling these things, uh, God clearly convicted me at the irony of the situation. That here I am preaching and teaching about unity, about every nation, tribe, and tongue being invited to worship the Lord. And my small group is actually doing it. They're tired of just talking about it. But they're actually extending invitations, actually building a relationship with people. Right then and there, I was getting annoyed. I had to repent and realize that I am just like this religious, the religious leaders who love to talk and research and march and post. But when time comes to build the actual relationships, I'll find any excuse not to. Fighting for justice feels like fighting for the long defeat. It feels like fighting for the losing side. But I don't know about you guys, but I can no longer turn my back on the losers. I can't simply sit in my home and advocate without actually fighting and doing the work it takes to invite them into my home. I don't want to just fight for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I want to befriend the George Floyds and the Breonna Taylors of this world so that this injustice will stop. I want to love people. The way God has called us to love. Because God first fought for us. When Jesus came, he realized that we were half dead. And many religious leaders, many people that he had called to be prophets and priests had failed us. And so we had no way to get to God. And so that's why he died, to fight for us. And here's the thing about the Samaritan. Part of me wonders if it was easy for him to have compassion because he remembered that as a Samaritan, he himself was often an outcast. He himself was often marginalized and stigmatized. And so it was easy for him to see others who were like that and have compassion. And I say that because I wonder what it would be like for us if we remember that we too were outcasts. Maybe now we're good at assimilating into dominant culture. Maybe we we were born into dominant culture. But to the Lord, we were outcasts. And he did not ask us to change before he called us a friend of his This uh, series I've been talking about how it's less um, about, you know, what we should do for justice, but more about who we are becoming, who God is calling us to, the ways he can change our hearts. My prayer for you guys is that everyone you see, you will recognize that they are in the image of God. Any power or resources or influence you have, you will use to empower them protect them and take care of them in their time of need. That you'll remember the beautiful picture of diversity that God has given us. And with all this, you will now go out and build relationships with the people that God is calling you to build. And with that, I trust that we can pursue real justice in Chicago.